invite you to take a Bible and turn uh, to Psalm 13. That was the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 13. Uh, There are times in the life of uh, every believer who, uh, even though you are walking by faith and and seeking to follow the Lord, that God may seem far away. I mean, you may pray, and it seems as though God does not, not only does he not answer, you don't even think he's there. You read the Bible, and it, it, it just seems like any other written page. You seek God, and it seems as if uh, God is hiding. And uh, Psalm 13, that's what David, who wrote this psalm, experienced. Uh, we read it earlier, but I'd, I'd like to read it uh, one more time. It's very brief, just six short verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. We don't know uh, exactly when this took place in David's life, though we're pretty sure it was during the dark days of after he had been told that he would become king of Israel. Uh, it was during those times of preparation when he was being pursued by, by Saul. If you go back to 1 Samuel, the, the book of 1 Samuel, you can read where, where David, as a, as a young boy, really, a, a youngster, is, is told by the, the prophet Samuel that he would become the king of God's people. He's told that there before his, his dad and his other brothers. And then in 1 Samuel we read where he uh, kills Goliath, uh, the giant, who was a Philistine, representing the army of these enemies of, of the Israelites, the Philistines. And therefore, when he defeated Goliath, uh, that represented that the Philistines themselves had been defeated Uh, this foe of Israel. And so at that point, David becomes the most famous hero in the land. And the people literally sing his praises. If you had turned the radio on in those days on the country music channel, they would have been singing, "Uh, Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. I mean, he he was the man of the hour. And Saul was the king, and he didn't like it. He uh, becomes very hostile toward David. He becomes so hostile that he sets out to murder David. Uh, so he's not only jealous, he's, he's paranoid, uh, Saul is. And so he seeks to carry out this plan literally for years to see that David is killed. David's innocent. Not only that, he's loyal toward King Saul. Uh, David literally runs for his life, and he lives as an escaped fugitive, fugitive in the hills of the area called Judea. And for a long time, in fact, if you, if you have a Sunday school background, if you went to vacation Bible school, or you've heard sermons or read lessons on the life of David, you, you kind of can know the, the highlights. You know about him being a boy and Samuel's uh, saying that, anointing him to be king. You know about him fighting Goliath. And then you know probably that Saul, to honor David, gave him one of his daughters as his wife. And you know about his friendship with Jonathan. And then you know he became king. And this part gets a little fuzzy. You know how long this lasted from the time David was told he'd be king and during the time Saul pursues him, tries to kill him until he becomes king? You know how long that was? Twelve years. 
We tend to think, oh, that was just a matter of months. No, it was a long time. And during most of that time, he's running for his life, running from the king who he's loyal to, King Saul. We believe this psalm was written during that time he was a fugitive, so to speak. And it's, a, it's really a, a simple psalm. There, there's, there's three little divisions, and this isn't because I'm a preacher that I had to have three points. The first two verses are clearly he's pleading almost like on his face with God. The second two verses, which are verse 3 and 4, he begins to pray. He has more his wits about him. And then the last two verses is though he's standing on his feet. He affirms what he believes. So he goes from his face to pleading to his knees to where he's praying to the last two verses to where he's affirming what he believes. So let's just take a few moments and look at each of those. He begins with questions. Do you ever, do you ever ask a question or someone ever ask you a question and they don't really want an answer? They're making a point. You know, the, uh, <laughs> like the Geico commercials, you know, was, was uh, Abraham Lincoln honest? And, you know, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Or you, your, your wife says, you're not really going out wearing that, are you? I mean, do you, are you going to answer that question? Or you walk up to the receptionist and say, how long? I've been here an hour. How long until he sees me? You're making a point. You're not really asking a question. And we have this repeated four times. How long? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? And so forth. He's, he's on his face really voicing his opinion. He's, he's venting his emotions. This is how he feels. And so he, he's not really wanting a, a date in time. He's not wanting God to, to tell him, well, three more days. He, he's, he's complaining to God. He's, he's pleading with him. Uh, and so he says, will you forget me forever? He knows that's not true, but that's what he felt. The Psalms tell us and show us how we often feel. He knew that God was with him. This is the fellow that later writes Psalm 139 about being made in my mother's womb and all my days are before you and my thoughts before I think them. He knew that, but he felt that God had abandoned him. And he's waiting, and waiting is difficult. Do you like to wait? I don't know anyone that likes to wait for anything. I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down. The hard thing about waiting is that you have to wait. <laughs> It's profound. Waiting is especially hard if you don't have much to do while you're waiting. What he's doing is waiting for his enemy to quit chastening. Most of the time, during those 12 years, he's out in a wilderness area, a remote area, with some other men, basically hiding out in caves and preparing food and watching. That's really difficult waiting. And so the hours become days, became weeks, became months, dragged on for years and years. It's obvious that God's timetable was not the same as David's, just like it's obvious his timetable is rarely our timetable. Phillips Brooks was a hymn writer and a preacher in New England, greatly used of the Lord. One day he was very agitated, and that was unlike him normally. He's pacing back and forth on the floor, and his friend asked him, what is the trouble? And Brooks replied, the trouble is I'm in a hurry, but God is not. God is rarely, never in a hurry, like we are. Now, we think in terms of minutes and hours and days, time frames, God tends to work in years and decades and centuries. Let me give you two examples, two well-known examples. You know these from the Bible. The first is, is the account we have of Joseph. Back in the book of Genesis, 
God wanted Joseph to be in a position of influence in Egypt. It was difficult for me to watch the uh, historical goings on in Egypt this week and not think back to things like Joseph and the history there in that, that land. But God wanted Joseph in a position of influence. So how does he get him there? He doesn't even live in Egypt. How does he move Joseph into that position? Well, first, his brothers slay, uh, sell him into slavery. He's a teenager. Uh, the people that buy him haul him off to a foreign land, down to Egypt. Then the man for whom he's working, a governor of sort, Potiphar, uh, the wife falsely accuses him of trying to rape her. So he's thrown in prison. And a long time goes by, years, from the time he's 17 until he's 30. Basically, he's in prison. Now, we can only assume, though we don't know for sure, that Joseph is praying all during that time, God, get me out of here. Get me out of here. What is being accomplished by me sitting here year after year? God doesn't seem to hear. Finally, another inmate is talking with Joseph. And this inmate was the king's cupbearer. People didn't really want to be a cupbearer. You were the guy that had to taste the wine to see if it had any poison in it, you know, before you gave it to the king. But it was sort of a precarious place of honor. And he's in jail. And he has a dream, and Joseph tells him what's going to happen to him. And then Joseph says, you're going to get out of here. When you get out of here, remember me, so I'll get out of here. Remember me when you get out. Well, sure enough, the cupbearer assures him that he would not forget him. And that's exactly what he does. <laughs> he gets out, and then we read in Genesis 41, Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Two more years. And that's when the cupbearer said, Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Two years ago, there was this guy I met. He could interpret dreams. Two years, Joseph languishes in prison. Couldn't God have given Pharaoh a dream a little sooner? Why wait so long? Second example is the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in history, uh, evangelist, church planter, apologist for the faith all around the Mediterranean. So much work to be done. He himself had written saying, how will, how will people hear without a preacher? God wanted Paul in Rome. And Paul's plans were to go to Rome, and then he wanted to go to Spain, where he could continue to evangelize. Well, how does God get Paul to Rome? Well, he has him imprisoned on a false charge. I mentioned at the first service, it's interesting, when you look at some of the premier servants of the Lord, they've all been in prison. And they're usually there falsely accused. So while he's in prison, the governor... In the area where he is, the governor of Caesarea hears about Paul, hears his case, and when he listens to him, he knows Paul's innocent. He had the power to release him at that very point. But he knew that Paul was well-connected. And so this, this governor, wanting to get some bribes, leaves Paul in prison. Guess how long? Don't say it, but Acts 24 reads, After two years had passed... Two years, just like with Joseph. 
It says, Felix was succeeded by Portius Fester in wishing to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Two years he's there in Caesarea. People are perishing without Christ. God's brand new churches need guidance. Why didn't God do something? Why didn't he move the heart of the governor to release Paul? Wasn't Paul walking by faith? Was Paul in some kind of sin that God was disciplining him for? Why did he have him sit there so long? In both of those cases, the waiting, as we look back now, then and now, seemed to be for nothing. It appeared to be a complete waste of time when there were so many more important and valuable things to be accomplished. Well, that's what David is going through. If you've ever felt that way when you're waiting on a decision or something to happen or an answer to prayer, that's where David was. Not only is David being pursued by Saul, the enemy seems to be winning. In verse 2, he says, How long will my enemy triumph over me? Saul was still the king. Saul was still living in in, uh, palatial-type surroundings. Saul is the one who's viewed as a good guy. Sooner or later, you may be there. When it's not a quick trial that lasts for a day or a week, but it goes on and on and on, and you call out to God, and even though you would say, well, I know he hears me, you don't feel like he hears me. You try to figure out how to get out of your circumstances, but nothing works. You're not passive, but it's though nothing changes. So what does he do? Well, it's pretty simple, but he prays. He begins to pray, and that's what we have in verses 3 and 4. I mentioned the first two verses as though he's on his face, pleading, Now in verses 3 and 4, he's on his knees, he prays. And he has three simple requests. Look on me, answer me, and give light to my eyes. Look on me. His feelings tell him that God has turned away from him. Now he he knows, we know, God is spirit. God does not have, have a body. The Bible speaks of God's mighty hand and walking on the wings of the wind. But we know he doesn't have a body doing that. That's figurative language, talking about his power and his might. So David knew It's not as though his literal face, but it's it's like when you're talking to someone, they turn their back to you. And you know they're not listening to you, and they don't care what you have to say. That's the way he felt. So he's saying, look on me. Theologians say that we live before the face of God. They call this quorum Deo. What that means is that all of us are made. You were created. I was created. All people are created fundamentally to have a relationship with God. And he knows everything about us all the time. And our lives are lived out before his eyes. Your thoughts, your motives, your desires, your plans. Whatever your plans are for the future, he knows it. Whatever you're thinking about, your emotions, how you feel, it's all before him. First Chronicles says, For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Every movement of your outward and inward life, of your physical body, it happens in relationship to him. Do you believe God is near you or far from you at the moment? He is near you, but your feelings and emotions fluctuate. And when he feels far away, it's not because he is far away. He is near you. You live quorum Deo, before the face of God. And sometimes you need to pray about it just to remind yourself of this truth. And that's what's happening here. His prayer becomes the means by which God, you might say, restores him. Look on me, and then he says, answer me. 
He says, my God, O Lord, my God, in verse 3. And then he says, give light to my eyes. He needed wisdom. That's a biblical phrase for wisdom. Help me understand. How does God give wisdom? How does God give wisdom today? He gives it through his word. He gives it, we know, through other means, like the counsel of godly friends. But he also gives it in response to us asking for it. What student does not know the verse in James? If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Now, I had a prayer that I prayed all through school. High school, college, seminary. The test comes out. Oh, Lord, please bring to mind things I've never read. <laughs> that's not what this verse is talking about. Though that's often what, how we try to apply it. God says, if you lack wisdom, ask, I'll give it to you. We need to know the context. The context comes in the two verses before that in James where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, trials of many kinds. God invites us to ask for wisdom, but especially in times that are difficult, in times of trial. That's when we need wisdom. Isn't that when we say, why? Why is this happening? I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. That's when we need wisdom. And so God particularly says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God, and he will give it. Now, I mentioned uh, to the first group, I had never studied this psalm until this week. <laughs> you say, well, that's obvious. I mean, I'm telling you the obvious right there. <laughs> you, but I want to tell you what I learned. This is the main thought I came away from this. It's right here. When you're discouraged or even feel dejected or whatever you may be going through similar to this, probably the last thing you feel like doing is praying. In fact, the temptation is to shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, I'm just resigned to it. I guess this is just the way it's going to be. But prayer is progress. The martyred missionary Jim Elliott said, the saint who advances on his knees never retreats. And so the prayer isn't so much the means to bring out God's blessing. The prayer may be the answer itself. The prayer becomes the conduit for God to give us wisdom. And so what happens here with David is not a change in any circumstances. What happened was a change in him because he was praying. So our prayer should be concerned for God's glory. Note what he says in his prayer. Give a light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. What's that? What kind of prayer is that? That's an argument. He is giving reasons why God should answer him. He is praying God's concerns back to God. You know how to pray scripture? Hopefully your prayers are scriptural prayers. You pray back scripture to God. God, you say this, and therefore we bring it back up. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher of the 1800s, said these are like arrows. Prayers should have arguments, and the arguments are like arrows that we pull out of the quiver, and we shoot those up into heaven. And so the arguments become God's will God's word. And the example he gave was Moses. You may not remember the story in Old Testament where Moses is there, God's leader, God's prophet before God's people, and they're all complaining. Nothing but complaints, complaints, complaints. And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be crass, but God basically says, I've had it. Move aside, Moses. I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to start a new nation with you. And Moses, before God, says, if you do that, 
then the Egyptians and all these other foreigners will say, see, their God was not powerful enough to accomplish what he had said. And God, in one of the most bizarre passages in the Bible, says back to Moses, because of your prayer, I will change my mind. You familiar with that passage? What did Moses do? Moses' prayer was an argument for what would glorify God the most. David's prayer is, look what's going to happen. My enemies will rejoice. My foes will rejoice. Basically, if they kill me, if he kills me, Lord, you will bear some of the shame. They will mock you because you've said I'm to be the king. And I prayed for my father's salvation for 20 years before he was converted long ago. I knew that, what Spurgeon said, and I knew that about praying, and I w- about our prayers should not be so passive such as, well, Lord, if it's your will, and if you're so inclined, and if we know that you've already got this planned out, if you might, please save my father. It w- y'all know those kind of prayers. Those are true and true Presbyterian prayers, it would seem. But it would be more, Lord, you say you desire that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. How will it bring you glory if this man does not come to faith in Christ? He's got a godly wife who's prayed for him for over 20 years. He's got a son that's prayed for him for over 20 years. Now, to some, that might sound brash and arrogant. It could be, but I don't think it was because it's based on the arguments of Scripture. God's going to do his will. We know that. I think sometimes our prayers... Our our prayers just, we don't use God's arguments back to him. But that's what David did, and I'd urge you to do the same. Well, last of all, we see him standing. We've seen him on his face, we've seen him on his knees, and now in the last two verses, five and six, he affirms his faith. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. What a change of tone back from, Oh, Lord, how long? Will you forget me forever? Now, I trust in your unfailing love. I will sing to the Lord, for he, is, he has been good to me. What, as I mentioned, what has changed? Is Saul no longer chastening? Have the people risen up and said, We're going to make you king? No, he's still in the same, probably the same cave. He's with the same guys, doing the same thing, still running for his life. What's changed is David. He's changed. His circumstances are identical at the end of the prayers they were at the beginning. And often that's the change that God will bring about is through your praying. We call prayer a means of grace. Now, I'm just assuming you're like me, and that is when you're really disappointed or when God hasn't seemed to answer, you don't pray. I want to urge you, pray. I want to urge you from this psalm, pray. I was talking with a buddy of mine, a godly man. I have the greatest respect for him. He had a relative that died suddenly, rather suddenly, last year. Had a sister that found out she had a bad disease. Two months later, she's dead. I was with him several months after that happened, and we were talking, and I said, how has this affected your prayer life? He said, Right now, honestly, I cannot pray for healing. He meant for anybody. I can't pray for God to heal anybody because he said my faith just sitting there after what's happened. And we agreed he wasn't saying that was good. We agreed you, you've been disappointed. You've been disappointed. And right now it's kind of like, oh, okay. Now what? That's what David felt. Pray. But don't quit praying. Pray. 
His confidence is in the covenant love of God, which expresses itself in the deliverance. Now, this isn't a Hebrew lesson, but from what I studied, when he says, I trust in your unfailing love, my heart rejoices in your salvation, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. When he says, my heart rejoices in your salvation, he is speaking as though it's already happened, but it hasn't. He is so certain that God is going to save him, ultimately, he will have salvation, that he prays and thanks God now like it's already taken place. Now, that's, that's faith. That's confidence. We say, what did David know? This is before the cross. This is before the incarnation of Jesus. Oh, he knew. He knew about the Redeemer who would come. He knew about the covenant promises. He had been to the tent of meeting and the tabernacle and And he knew about the law and the sacrifices and the substitute and that God was going to send a lamb who would be perfect and that our sin demands death as a punishment and this one who would come would be the lamb who would take away our sins and that through faith in him he would go to prepare a place where he would be forever. David knew all that. He was looking ahead to it as we look back to it. So that is where his trust was. It was in Christ. It was in Christ as his Savior. So in a sentence, let me summarize it. David chose to interpret his circumstances by God's love rather than to interpret God's love by his circumstances. He chose to interpret his circumstances by God's love rather than to interpret God's love by his circumstances. When God seems distant, we must call to him and trust in his unfailing love. And at those times when it seems as if God has turned his back on you, then you must deliberately trust the fact that he loves you with an unfailing love, that he will not forsake you, even though it may seem for a while that way. Don't be tempted to discouragement. Now, I want to read you a little story. I don't read many of these. I never read these in sermons, but this one caught my attention. It's by a guy named John Lawrence. He wrote a book some years ago called Down to Earth. Now, I saw this paragraph, and it caught my attention. It was advertised that the devil was going to put his tools up for sale. On the date of the sale, the tools were placed for public inspection, each being marked with its sale price. This was a treacherous group of implements. Hatred, envy, jealousy, doubt, lying, and so on. Apart from the rest of the pile, there was a harmless-looking tool, well-worn, but priced very high. And one of the purchasers asked, what's the name of that tool? Oh, said the devil, that's discouragement. Well, why have you priced it so high? And he said, because it's more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open and get inside a person's heart with that one. And when I get inside, uh, I can then get him with all the other tools. I make him do what I want him to do. It's a badly worn tool because I use it on almost everyone since few people know that it belongs to me. The devil's price for discouragement was so high that he never sold it. It's still his major tool, and he still uses it on God's people today. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you know us, that we do live before your face We pray that you'd give us the certainty of the promises and your warnings about the fact that we are all sinners and the wages of sin is death. We're grateful that you sent Jesus to be a substitute, to take our place, to take the punishment that we deserve, and that through faith in him we not only can know you, but you give us new lives. 
and you give us a purpose for living. We pray that we might know your presence. We pray for one another that if anyone is discouraged and may be really disappointed and feels prayerless in their own lives because of that hurt, that you might give them repentance today and that you might restore them to you in that sense of your uh, work in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing uh, hymn is well known, and it talks about the...